This episode of TGC Podcast is sponsored by Acts 29 with an invitation to their 2024 Next Conference happening April 15th through the 17th in Dallas, Texas. You don't want to miss this great lineup of speakers, including Sam Albury, Matt Chandler, Brian Loritz, John Piper, and more. The Next Conference will equip and encourage church planters and church leaders of all types for church ministry. To learn more and register for Next, visit acts29.com slash next. TGC podcast listeners will receive a special discount of $20 off registration prices by using the code TGC. Again, visit acts29.com slash next. That's acts29.com slash next. This episode of TGC Podcast is sponsored by The Good Book Company, publisher of Future Proof by Stephen McAlpine. Stephen McAlpine is an Australian writer and speaker who specializes in cultural engagement and the church. His new book, Future Proof, is now available. McAlpine encourages readers that we have been given everything we need in Christ to thrive in a post-Christian cultural landscape. Visit thegoodbook.com future to find this book and other resources that will help you engage with the culture in a thoughtful and biblical way and use code FUTURE at checkout to receive 25% off. That's thegoodbook.com slash future. This episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast is sponsored by Southern Seminary. The pastors of tomorrow won't need less theological training. They'll need more. That's why Southern exists, to provide deep, rich, and strong ministry preparation that endures. Southern Seminary, trusted for truth. Learn more at sbts.edu. This is the Gospel Coalition podcast, where we seek to renew the contemporary church in the ancient gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm your host, Colin Hansen. Today's podcast is a panel discussion on evangelism as exiles. Panelists are Jason Cook, Elliot Clark, Jen Pollock-Michelle, and Russell Moore. It was recorded at our 2019 National Conference in Indianapolis. My name is Jason Cook. I will serve as the moderator uh, this afternoon, and we desperately need this conversation. Uh, A quick Google search or cursory survey amongst your church or even those whom you may know will reveal that many Christians believe evangelism to be optional, outdated, intrusive, and or have altogether abandoned uh, this joy-filled mandate from our Lord. Uh, In fact, just recently we learned uh, through a study that 50% of millennials actually say it's wrong to evangelize. Um, And so wrapped up in this conversation are all sorts of racial and political and socioeconomic implications here in the West, uh, and it seems that many of those things are keeping believers from hopping into the fray. In short, uh, it's a mess. Um, And so, but to help us unpack these ideas and more uh, and to move toward clarity, I am thrilled to be joined by Jen Michelle, who's the award-winning author of uh, Teach Us to Want in Keeping Place. Jen holds a BA in French from Wheaton College. That's impressive. I'll speak in French, so nobody will know I'm saying dumb things. Exactly. (laughs) Wisdom. Uh, She also has an MA in literature from Northwestern, and she and her husband, Ryan, have five school-age children and attend Grace Toronto Church. Uh, Next to her is Elliot Clark, uh, who has uh, lived in Central Asia, where he served as a cross-cultural church planter, along with his wife and children. 
Uh, he is currently working to train local church leaders uh, and, and give theological education and training overseas through Training Leaders International. And he's the author of Evangelism as Exiles, Life on Mission as Strangers in Our Own Land, the namesake of this breakout. And uh, he's all around uh, the man. So, brother, thank you for joining us. And then next to him is Dr. Russell Moore, who is the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. Distinguished gentlemen and lady, thank you for joining me. I want to kind of open up our conversation uh, with a general question free for you all to ask, uh, or answer rather. And it is as follows. In your context and experience, what are the challenges of evangelism in a post-Christian and a post-modern world? Well, I can maybe step in there. Um, I would say, as our family came back three years ago, stepped back into living here in the U.S., uh, I sense a shift, and I'm sure all of you do because you live here, um, that we are moving from an apathetic uh, audience, from people who are generally, maybe we might say, uninterested in the gospel, or maybe uninterested in coming to church, to more an antagonistic response. So, okay, well, maybe before we would say, that's fine for you to believe the gospel. Um, that's good That's good for you to believe it, whatever. But I think as we move into this more antagonistic response, it, it might still be that they'll, they'll think that, that, okay, it's okay for you to be a Christian, to believe these things, but it's not good for me and it's not good for society. And so we're finding people who actually are opposed to our gospel and opposed to us. And the challenge I, I see that, I mean, multiple, but one challenge I think in particular would be we have conceived of evangelism in terms of raising people's interest, uh, getting them to be more curious, an attractional model of, of evangelism whereby we can draw people in and make it interesting for them. Uh, that might work when you have an apathetic audience. But when people are against the gospel, against the church, they distrust you and the institution, the pastor, whoever, we're going to have to rethink how we go about this um, if people's perception and response is fundamentally different than it was before. I was just going to share from our context. I live in Toronto, and you can pray for one of the um, church pastors who have been, who've, they've planted a church from our church. They've now looked at 40 locations in the city to have a permanent home in the city, and they're having a lot of trouble, and they're actually running into people that are incredibly hostile to renting to them, including actually um, ministers in other churches. We don't want to share our building with you. We believe that you, you holding a traditional sexual ethic is actually bad for our city. Do you know the suicide rates of transgender teens and, you know, in the LGBT community? because you do not, you know, sort of proclaim sexual freedom to do whatever you want, um, you're bad for our city. His, the city councilor has actually told him that. Numerous people have told him that as they've looked to rent in the city. Um, we've had difficulty renting with the Toronto District School Board because, again, 
it, there's just such hostility in Toronto um, with f four evangelical churches. And so I just want to actually put out a call to pray for Christchurch in Toronto that they can find a permanent um, rental space in the city. One of the things that has changed is for a long time in an American context, there was the ability to try to find what's the connection point where we enter in with the gospel. And a lot of times that had to do with uh, family, marriage, parenting, uh, or sort of find your purpose in life, your, your meaning in life. Uh, and so you would, you would have that connection point where people who weren't interested in the gospel, but they were interested in trying to figure out how do I, how do I raise my kids? And so you could have that entry point. Well, now you're at a point where people not only are not interested in the gospel, they also have no reason uh, to think that the church has any necessary expertise when it comes to raising children or figuring out marriages. Uh, they have life coaches when they need life for, for people who need life coaches. And uh, for other people, there's not that point of connection. And for a lot of churches, that's a hard transition uh, to make. Uh, it's a necessary transition to figure that out, but for a lot of places, it's a hard transition to figure out. And the other part of it, I think, that's happening internally, and maybe especially within our sort of circle of evangelicalism, is we all tend to overreact to the last bad thing. And so a, a lot of us have reacted to a really programmatic uh, sort of step. Here, here's the list of steps when it comes to leading somebody to Christ and to sort of manipulative kind of decisional um, uh, models of evangelism, but that's being replaced often with no evangelism or with evangelism that goes right up to the point but doesn't get to the point to the call to decision. And, and some of that is actually driven even further by these cultural trends because a lot of Christians are intimidated uh, when it comes to, to people, especially when people are kind of hostile. I think, well, that's intimidating and that shuts me down, when in reality we have a biblical model for why there's initial hostility. When you have initial hostility, it's not that you give up. It's that the light shines in the darkness. That it's, it's actually working at that point. But I think we, we tend to get discouraged and, and withdraw. I, I want to come back to that here in a moment. Um, but, Jen, you hit on something I think that is something I'm finding a lot, which is um, these, this ideology based on memes and maxims where everyone's trying to live their best life. Yeah. Um, and in an age of self-discovery, the whole lose yourself to find yourself, self-empowerment, life coaches, as you mentioned, Dr. Moore, and the sufficiency of self and the pursuit of happiness, mm -hmm. the gospel in many ways stands in stark contradistinction to a lot of that worldview and ideology. Um, and in many ways is a blessing to those who are kind of trapped in that thinking. Uh, can you kind of talk to how the gospel may be a blessing to those who see the world through that lens? Mm -hmm. I think as soon as you embrace a kind of you do you and I'll do me and we're all sort of, you know, captains of our ships and free to do whatever we want. I mean, essentially, that ends up not leading to freedom, but to slavery. And I think about, like, if I have to be in charge of my life and my happiness, that means I have to control every outcome. I have to make sure that none of my relationships fall apart. I have to make sure that I have absolutely the job that is meaningful and purposeful and gives me the money that I need. And I have to be able to afford all the vacation. Like, it's all up to me. 
And can you imagine what happens when your child's diagnosed with cancer? What happens when you have that une uh, unexpected season of unemployment? What happens when your spouse leaves you? What happens when you have chronic illness? Um, so as a Christian, I really feel like we get to tell the world, you know, there, is, there are two ways to build your life, Jesus said. And you can, and we're all building a house. And the, the rain is going to fall on every house that's built. Some are built on sand and will fall, and some are built on rock and they will stand. And we get to proclaim the gospel that you don't have to, com you don't have to control every outcome of your life. You actually could face the very worst. And you could still know peace. And ultimately, you can know hope beyond this world. And I think that's an incredible um, message to proclaim. Man, the, the power of that and sharing that, the gospel with people, mm -hmm. man, that's so strong. Now, Elliot, I got some beef with you, brother. Now, I've read your book. And for all of y'all in here, the book is fantastic. Yeah. I highly recommend it. But you say some pretty incendiary things in there, brother. And one of the things that you say is you take issue with the phrase, share the gospel. And you say that it's wildly unhelpful. Uh, and I'm just, uh, I'm really kind of in my feelings over here, bro. Can you, can you, can you share a little bit about what you mean and, and what is it that you uh, find problematic about it and what's the better way forward that you would advise? Well, I think to be, I'd love to be in everybody's feelings on this topic a little bit. Um, I th it, it starts with definition. What, what does scripture mean when it talks about evangelism? And we go back to the Greek word. It just simply, by definition, is to, to evangelize is to announce or proclaim good news. And that, that just needs to stand on its own, and, and we need to listen to that first. Uh, but then I think when we, when we look at even how Scripture describes the act of evangelism, when we read the Acts of the Apostles and see what they do with the gospel, uh, what we find is Luke recording them proclaiming, declaring, heralding, uh, announcing, persuading, pleading, calling, bearing witness to Christ, calling sinners to repentance. We don't find them sharing the gospel. And I, I'm not opposed to this term, this phrase, totally. I mean, you can find 1 Thessalonians 2 would be an example. You can find maybe one or two examples scripturally. Uh, so that's not an unbiblical concept. Paul gave the gospel. He shared the gospel with the Thessalonians. But even in the context of that giving, if you look at how Paul describes what it looks like to give the gospel, to share it, it's remember how I proclaim to you with all boldness. And I think it should give us pause when we think about the reality that the dominant way, almost exclusive way, we speak of evangelism is in terms of sharing and giving. Because I think that, I mean, words communicate something. And sharing is a far more passive way of talking about evangelism than declaring. Um, and you know what? Sharing's easier than declaring. It really is. Um, I'm, I'm tempted to, to default to kind of polite spiritual conversations and then be happy with myself that I've proclaimed the gospel. And, and it's just not always the case. And so 
I need to be corrected, and I think the church needs to just wrestle with this issue. The way we talk about evangelism inevitably influences the way we try to go about it. So if, I mean, if you're a pastor in here, think about what you're communicating to your people when you call them to obey the gospel or to obey Christ and evangelize the lost. And the way you use your words, the way you give examples, inevitably affects how people envision the way they would carry it out. So I think that's, uh, there's more we could say, but that's well, it. There's two things in there. The gospel as announcement. So the image of Harold uh, being sent from the king to announce good news to people. Um, and the messenger being sent to announce good news. But also, you talked about uh, sharing the gospel or heralding that good news in a polite fashion. Now, I live in Memphis, Tennessee. I live in the South, uh, uh, the capital of politeness, right? Uh, and in a day and age where we are so fragmented and so broken and so divided, uh, there is coming a time when even that polite speech, and even now there's consequences for heralding the good news uh, to people. There's consequences for that. Dr. Moore, you talk about being a prophetic minority uh, in talks and in your books and what it means for Christians to come from that place of being a prophetic minority, not a moral majority or some other uh, power dynamic, but that the power kind of structure is flipping. Uh, and I'm curious if you can speak briefly to why being a prophetic minority is a strength and not a position of weakness. Well, the, the problem is the, the example that Jen just gave a few, a few moments ago is coming from, if you think about the perspective of those places that don't want that, that church there, their perspective is that sort of evangelical Christianity is the dominant majority that is oppressing people. And then you turn around and you talk to evangelical Christians and they feel as though they are a persecuted minority surrounded by dominant secularism. So you end up in really everybody is feeling not just like they're a persecuted minority, but that they're a persecuted minority who has lost this golden age of being in the majority uh, at some point. And so there's a backstory behind all of that. So when I say seeing ourselves as a, as a minority, um, I don't mean victim status. Uh, what I mean is that's why I often put that prophetic in front of that, the Jeremiah call both to, to tear down and to uh, build up. There's a power that comes with the word that doesn't have to be backed up by power. As a matter of fact, power often distorts it. And so the, the weakness, not just weakness, but the felt weakness uh, in the New Testament is the conduit by which the, the, power, the power comes. And so if you have a group of people who, when you're looking around, the typical reaction can be, oh, look at what's happening in my community, look at what's happening. And that's not just, for a long time for evangelicals, that was kind of a, an urban problem. So people were worried about their kids going off to the big city where they were going to, to lose their faith. Now, in many contexts, that's kind of flipped where you have the cities that have strong churches and strong ministries, and then you go out into the rural areas and you have churches that are struggling in terms of substance abuse, in terms of uh, family disorder and everything else. So the minority status is to say we don't need power the way the world defines it if we have the power uh, of God, which means a, a lack of being, I don't have to be offended that people don't get me or don't understand me because it's not my 
that's not where I'm justified, is in their opinion. But I also don't have to be intimidated by that and, and to kind of withdraw from that. I can press forward. And often, uh, you know, if you just look at the way most of the people that we know uh, who, who came to faith in Christ, most of them it took a period of time of struggling with this, and they're not usually struggling with that publicly. They're usually saying, that's nonsense, that's ridiculous. But then in their mind, uh, the Spirit's doing its work. We ought to be confident in that. Yeah. I want to I stay here for a moment because I think that dynamic is interesting, that Christians surrounded by a secular culture feel oppressed by that, while a secular culture feels oppressed by, uh, by Christianity and organized religion. I'm, I'm, and I want to open this up to everyone. Like, how do you even begin to make inroads with people? Like, as a pastor who's moved 40 times in a city, the temptation to want to give up and quit and move somewhere else is pretty great. How do uh, you live in that tension where everyone's offended by the other, where everyone has beef with the other person? How, what are the gospel ways for, how do we move forward in relationship building uh, in a way that maybe Christ would do it with the climate being so hostile like that? I think, I think we have a, a real opportunity, opportunity to be countercultural through honor through demonstrating humility and gentleness and respect in ways that people don't have categories for when they know you're at odds with them. So uh, when you're talking with someone, when you, you have a neighbor that you know, well, we're just going to butt heads on every topic possible. Mm. But I'm committed to bless that person, to serve that person, to honor them. Um, so don't hear me saying in... Uh, trying to correct what I think is lacking in the, in the term sharing the gospel in that phrase. Don't hear me saying we shouldn't be polite. Uh, we should be the most honor-giving people there are. And, and so Paul, again, looking at the example of the apostles, there's this tension, that, or, or Paul, Paul's able to do evangelism in what is a tension for us with all humility and boldness. And we, we need to recover that, that I don't, it doesn't matter if someone offends me. I, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to take offense. I'm going to show them honor uh, by virtue of who they are as a human being. Uh, I'm going to show them honor for the sake of Christ and his gospel. And I'm going to treat them as I would wish them to treat me. And uh, I think those things, just those simple acts of blessing others, have a way to bear witness to Christ and um, validate our our bold proclamation. And I would say put a put one of those blood pressure cuffs on Jesus uh, throughout the Gospels and monitor uh, what are the things that cause that blood pressure to rise and what are the things that don't. And so you have Jesus in the temple with the desecration of the temple, very angry uh, and, and passionate uh, there. But then you have Jesus, he encounters the woman at the well in John 4, not shocked by what's going on by her. Uh, he's able to, to speak to her with honor, uh, but also to kind of deal with the issue she's bringing up, but then get to the ultimate issue that, that she needs to hear. And there's not a sense of, uh, a lot of times the, the reason that we're personally offended exposes our idolatry more than anything else, because the issue isn't that you're, you're messing with Jesus. Jesus is fine. Uh, it's that when you're saying Christianity is stupid and evil, you're saying, I'm stupid and evil. 
and I take offense at that, and that's the re- and people people know uh, what that is. They can see that. So the kind of tranquility that we see with Jesus before Pilate, mm. I'm not scared of you mm. because there's nothing you can ultimately do to me, is exactly what. Uh, needs to characterize us and our relations to the outside world. And that means having a sense of compassion and understanding why people think the way they do about us. I mean, I deal with hostile people all the time who, who just have, have a frothing at the mouth sort of view of Christianity. In almost none of those cases is this somebody who comes from a secular background is somebody who has had a horrible experience with a religious parent or a pastor or a youth pastor or a grandparent. And you have to have compassion on that to say they're not actually talking to you. They're expressing this uh, woundedness to somebody else behind you. Well, come in with Jesus. I get to brag on my church a little bit and my pastor's back there, Dan McDonald. (laughs) Dan, will you stand up? (laughs) Dan, where you at? Hey, thank you, brother. This is the guy you need to talk to because he has planted a church in Toronto, and our tagline is, in the city, for the city. And that alone is just language to tell the city, we're not against you. We are for you. And then how do you kind of put some muscle into that? Well, when you move into the neighborhood, you because our church has recently renovated a historic church in downtown Toronto, so we've kind of we've literally moved into the neighborhood, and one block away is the gay community. And what do we do? What did we do when we have our we had like a large open house event um, to just welcome our neighbors into the space, which I'm sure they were very curious to see because it's an 1876 historic church building um, in Toronto. So we went to um, all the communities including the um, kind of the center, the cultural center um, of the gay community. And they, you know, were like, no, you cannot leave your brochures or your little invitations here. And we're like, well, that's great. No, what about the cafe next door? Well, sure, you can leave them there. And, and literally that night, I realized that I got into conversation the night of the event with the, two of the council members for the gay community. And they had come to the event. Well, and that alone is just a bridge, right? Well, then when there was a serial killer um, in the gay community in Toronto, if you haven't read this story, it's, it's just so incredibly sad. Like, I don't know, six, seven, eight gay men were abducted in this community. Um, and before the police had apprehended him, you can imagine the absolute terror in the community. They came to us asking us to be a part of the council of, of, of community members who would, would be vigilant about the safety of the, their community members. That's what can happen like when you're intentional about being in your neighborhood and for your neighborhood. But we have to have language about that. And we also and we have to communicate a vision of that. And then we have to actually do things that that translate, um, make sense of that. So it's not just words, right? It's not just like, I love you, but um, I'm actually here to keep you safe. I'm here to welcome you into my space and be welcomed into your space if that's what you choose to do. That, that's a that's a very like warm and gracious and compassionate stance, mm-hmm. which in a lot of ways is very different from the populist soil, blood, and country way that many churches uh, really kind of that come out of fundamentalism kind of approach engaging culture. So it's not so much, hey, let's build a bridge of relationship, let's build a bridge of friendship, I'm here to serve you, 
And there's a lot of, hey, we're going to create our own cloistered communities, right? And in America, we hear this thing called, you know, in the States, we hear, hey, we're going to take America back for God. Like, we're going to bring America back to serve the Lord. In Canada, that's not an option. So can you talk briefly, and I'd love for you men to answer this as well, can you talk about how that sort of rhetoric may be problematic um, to us in the States and for those who would have that sort of ideology when it comes to evangelism and and engaging the culture? One thing that's just a really beautiful thing about being in the global church in Canada, guess what, is not the 51st state. (laughs) It is a different country. It's just, and then, you know, Toronto is incredibly cosmopolitan. There are people from all over the world actually in our church. And so you realize, like, how limited your vision sometimes is of that great multitude at the end of Revelation that, you know, the flag that's waving in the new Jerusalem is, is not stars and stripes, you know, Um, and we're not actually all speaking English, Um, and there's so many different languages that are represented there, and so sometimes that that language of, you know, take America back again, I think it really comes from a posture of, you know, America's kind of central to what Christianity is all about, and realizing now, I was talking to Rebecca McLaughlin, whose book is now in the bookstore, 12 something about confronting Christianity. I forget. I'm sorry, but go get it. Um, And she was saying that we often think about evangelicalism, like when people picture evangelicalism, they picture white and male, and it's actually black and female when you look at the global church. And I think those are just lessons for us that, you know, take America back again, again, comes from a position of, well, America central, right, to to the kingdom of God, Um, and realizing, oh, there's the someone's holding it up. Um, I also think it's a it's a false nostalgia. If we're going to be nostalgic for anything, we can be nostalgic for Eden. <laughs> but the other but really, we're not a nostalgic people. People, we are the people who look ahead um, to the new heavens and the new earth. Yeah, I mean, as someone who enjoys the opportunity to worship with believers in Asia and Africa with some regularity, I I can definitely agree with that assessment. And to be honest, the the church leaders that I'm training, sometimes they ask me questions of concern about America. I mean, they're they're concerned for us. And probably rightly so. Not in the sense that we need to take America back for God, but they just recognize that there are serious gaps in our thinking and and there's, a, there's obviously things happening in our culture and society that disturb them. Um, you know, it can be evident, obviously, just in the most recent uh, Methodist church uh, debates uh, and conference. I would say the other thing is, how would, if you wanted to take America back for God, how would you do that? And I think generally, we think in terms of by acquiring greater social and cultural power and influence. That's the way we will ultimately bring this country into line. And, and I, I think we've got to throw that away. Wow. We, we need to recognize that we have a gospel that doesn't require us a position and a status for that gospel to be powerful. So, uh, yeah, in some ways, let's, let's take America back for God as in the sense of let's preach the gospel yeah. and let's see lives change. But it... Yeah, what what they're saying when they mean that is not what mm-hmm. I'm thinking. That's good. That's good. 
in your book, you reference several times a uh, example. We don't have to go overseas to find an example of an enduring faithful witness despite a lack of power, despite very real persecution, um, death, government-sanctioned uh, oppression. We don't have to go very far, and it's the historically black church. And in your book, several times you reference how the historically black church uh, uh, can be a tutor uh, for us and can educate us on what it means to be persistent in preaching the gospel despite the whole world quite literally being against you. Can you speak a little bit about that and what the, in your experience, the historically black church can teach um, most homogenous churches what it means to be faithful? Yeah, so just to give it maybe a little background, as I was envisioning this book, I was bringing into it my experience overseas, living in Central Asia, doing ministry in a Muslim-majority context. And I was thinking about, okay, how, how we approached evangelism and church planting as literally the minority in that country, how, how does that, could that influence the way Americans who now increasingly see themselves as that minority, how can they do evangelism in this context? And in, also at the same time, thinking about First Peter and the idea of exile, shame and exclusion that, that we're beginning to face in our country like never before, uh, just for naming the name of Christ. But as I began to think about it from my perspective, I realized fairly quickly there are brothers and sisters who have lived in this country in positions of weakness, social weakness, exclusion, shame, oppression, and... Um, yeah, it's, it's the historically black church. And as I began just to reflect on um, the worship uh, specifically, and I, I was thinking here about uh, like in the antebellum South, Negro spirituals, you know, music that um, hasn't, I think many of us have an affection for the beauty of it. And what I began to witness as I, I did some reading and research is just the dispositions of that community, that suffering, exiled community, um, in, particularly in the South, but not just the South, um, they're an example to us. And they, they really, in their worship especially, I noticed, exemplify the very characteristics Peter is asking of first-generation Christians who are experiencing exile in the Roman Empire, in their own communities, even in their own homes. And so... Things like amazing hope in suffering, uh, incredible honor toward authority, um, the ability to sing with some kind of a, a holy unction and call sinners to repent, even in their songs. I mean, you think about Christian music today. We don't sing the way those brothers and sisters sang. Uh, they sing the gospel with power and authority and love and conviction and hope and glory that I would love to see us recover. And I think we have a lot to learn from them. Yeah. I, I totally agree. I, I want to talk about fear really quickly because fear tends to be, Elliot, in your book, a really central reason to why many people uh, don't uh, share the gospel, why they don't herald the good news. And Dr. Moore, in these divided days, it's often when we do herald the gospel that, to your earlier point, that many of the people who rail against the gospel um, have been hurt in the past, and church hurt is a very real thing. Um, enough bad experiences will make any uh, believer uh, in 
lose some courage. Uh, and fear becomes a very real thing. Could you just speak to the role of fear uh, in evangelism? And what do we do to get beyond that? Or is there any getting beyond that? Well, I think the primary issue is a justification uh, issue, uh, a really understanding uh, where our our audience is. So I, I think all the time about what's happening in John chapter 12, where you have many who believed what Jesus was saying, but who walked away because of fear of being put out of the synagogues. That is a very real fear that everybody experiences, which is a sense of, am I going to be sort of put out of whatever my safe uh, zone of, of people would, would be. And so I think you have to reorient yourself toward Judgment Day and toward that Galatians 1.10 uh, idea of I'm a servant of, of Christ, not a servant of the uh, acclaim of, of people. And that's going to work out not only just in terms of people being fearful of uh, of evangelizing because the people would reject them. But also, you think about Zacchaeus's house. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you probably have one group of people furious at Jesus that he's calling tax collectors to repentance for embezzling. Uh, why, why are you messing with this? And then another group of people look and see he's, he's with tax collectors and sinners. So a lot of Christians are in that sort of dynamic. I was with a group of uh, really secular uh, people uh, in in American life, you know, really fearful of religion. And I said, you, you all are worried about evangelism. So, so you always panic when you see some church group is praying for Hindus uh, during Diwali or they're praying for Muslims during Ramadan. And you're assuming that that means that these are the people, who Christians who are dehumanizing people. I said, actually, if you go into real communities, the churches that aren't just talking about evangelism, but are really doing evangelism, they're the very ones who are saying, no, 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 you're not going to mess with this Kurdish refugee community. And these are, these are our friends. Uh, these, are, these are human beings to us. Uh, and that, that just is the case uh, across the board. So take a long-term view and be willing to get some rejection. Be willing to have some people in your church saying, what are you doing? And that's especially true... Uh, not just when you're evangelizing, but when people actually come to faith in Christ. Then things really get interesting because then you're going to have churches that are saying, well, how, can, how are we supposed to bear this person's burdens, uh, you know, who, who is sharing different, has different burdens than we have, or whatever it is. Uh, take a longer-term view of that, I think. That's good. I want to talk to that point. I want to talk about hospitality for a moment and hospitality being used as um, kind of a method for evangelism, but really just loving people. Uh, My wife and I, I love my wife. I could care less about what our house looks like uh, as long as there's food there and uh, hot dogs and college football in the fall. Okay. But, but Courtney is really concerned about making our home hospitable and making it warm and inviting. And the amount of people who have told us through the years that we've never had a pastor invite us over for dinner or a um, uh, 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 same-sex attracted young woman telling us that uh, no Christian has ever been so kind. Uh, with your experience in Toronto, how has hospitality kind of played a role or has it played a role in how you and your church tends to see uh, evangelism and being a good neighbor? What does that look like? 
I think it's not at all coincidental that when Jesus gave us, you know, a way to remember him, he gave us a meal. And um, he said, you know, this is the way that you'll proclaim my death until I return. Um, you're going to eat together and you're going to drink together and you're going to remember my sacrifice. And of course, you know, that's not an, an exact um, equivalent to inviting your neighbors over um, for dinner. But it, it does mean that I think there's something really um, holy about the table. And in my city, I think really just inviting someone into your home is a way that you invite them into an unhurried space. And in a global city, like just to be um, sort of unhurried is a gift to people. Um, to invite somebody into your home is an incredibly intimate act. You're allowing them to kind of see the way that you live and see what you do and don't have. Um, and I think that's a real challenge in our city is to get beyond kind of an entertaining model of hospitality where it, you know, because we have a lot of foodies in our congregation and we have a lot of good food and restaurants in Toronto. So I always feel the burden of like, oh my gosh, if I can't do that, then, you know, I've failed. But I have to remember, like, no, just inviting people into my home is like inviting people into my life. And, you know, the Apostle Paul said, I shared my life with you, even as I shared the gospel. Proclaimed? Did he say proclaim or share there? Um, I'm not the share police. Okay. <laughs> um, Maybe but, I'm thinking it in my mind. <laughs> it's It's been a huge way. And truthfully, it's been a beautiful way to love on the friends of our children as well. I'm very surprised at um, how often our children's friends want to come to our house. It's not the nicest house. doesn't have the coolest things. But there's always food. <laughs> you know, there's something to be found. And that's part of the fact that we have five children. So there's always food. Um, you know, amen. Um, but... Why do people feel like food is an invitation? It really is, and it's such an intimate act, and it's so simple, too. Um, but I think, to Elliot's point, is, is the challenge of turning those polite conversations, polite spiritual conversations even, to proclaiming the gospel. making And that's I would say that's where I am, my husband and I are personally, is like we have a lot of wonderful uh, friendships in the city, we've had a lot of wonderful spiritual conversations and I would say most of them have been polite and few of them have been pushing toward that, hey, I really want to, I really want to proclaim this good news to you. Um, so that's a challenge I think for us personally. Yeah, so obviously hospitality, if you're even attuned at all to kind of the evangelical culture is getting a lot of play these days mm -hmm. and I think rightly so. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at, at Matthew chapter 8, Jesus is um, approached by the centurion who's got a servant who's at home sick, and Jesus is astonished at his faith. And he stops everything, turns and looks at his disciples, and says, do, do you realize that many will come from east and west and sit at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom? And, and it's his faith, that uh, the, this Gentile's faith, that excites Jesus enough that he says, time out, brothers, let's, let, did you see what just happened? And he, he talks immediately about the honor of a Gentile sitting at Abraham's side in the kingdom. And then just a few verses later, chapter 9, we see Jesus sitting at table. Matthew, Matthew uses the phrase two more times in, in just a matter of a chapter. Jesus sitting at table at Matthew's house. 
eating and reclining with sinners and calling them to repentance, Matthew tells us. So I, I see it as a Matthew, I mean, Matthew puts out a great feast, it says, and I think it's intentional, it's with wicked people, uh, you know, there's some discontinuity in who you should be inviting into your home, not, not sameness, and, and it's to call sinners, and that's the, the goal. Um, and I think people are only going to sit at table with us in the kingdom if they, some people, if they only first sit at table with us in our homes. So let's move that way. And then just a, a maybe a little different approach. I don't talk about this in the book, but we often, when we envision evangelism, if you're in the, in the workplace, let's just say, um, I've had these thoughts many times. If I can just get that moment, maybe I'm praying for this person, uh, if I could just have that perfect moment where I'm alone with so-and-so, that then we can have this conversation, that I, and I'm just waiting for that perfect moment. And I just want to encourage us, evangelism doesn't have to be individualistic, one-on-one conversation. In fact, there's a lot of power in multiple people together talking about this. Maybe the person you're wanting to talk to is not going to respond, but what if their mother or their brother is? What if they're only going to hear it if you invite the whole family over? And then, you know, one of the growing concerns, obviously, in our Christian culture is what's happening to our children? They're leaving the church. But have our children ever heard us preach the gospel to someone else? And if you do evangelism in your home, it's amazing because your kids watch you demonstrate the reality of your faith in front of them in ways that are, to me, are more powerful than almost anything else you could do with your children. Uh, Dr. Moore, you're uh, one of the busiest men that I know. And there may be people who would say, well, that sounds good and fine, but I'm really busy. I travel a lot for work, and I've got a lot uh, of things to do. And I'm, you know, I've got kids, and I've got to get to games and rehearsals and recitals. What does that look like for you being anchored in a local church? And how do you see evangelism as a busy person uh, in light of this conversation? Well, I actually think busyness can be an asset in, in one sense uh, because you find places to connect with people uh, that can enable you to actually go a little deeper than you might ordinarily do if you start out saying this is what we're going to. I think about this all the time in terms of when, uh, when my oldest sons were getting ready for the talk, you know, about the facts of life, uh, I had a program that a friend of mine had, had developed um, that, that was kind of a CD series that you listen to in the car and then you would stop and talk. And the reason they did it that way is because it took a little bit of the awkwardness uh, out of it. You're driving along, you're looking ahead, and, you know, so, so some things are kind of processing, and then you stop and have the, the conversation. And I, it, as this was happening, this is so much better than it was when my dad said, hey, let's sit down, and I'm going to talk to you about these things that you never, ever, ever want me to say to you again. Uh, and, and I think, really, a lot of these you know, we think about what's the big problem when it comes to these, these, these conversations about the gospel is there's a self-protectiveness. You're really getting right at the core uh, of people. Sometimes when you're finding these uh, other areas to connect and then 
one of my closest friends in the world is uh, a completely secular Muslim uh, guy who probably doesn't agree with me on much of anything, but we happened to be working in the same place at one time and built a, a relationship, and you're able then to have deep conversations both directions, really, uh, without, uh, without a sense of uh, artificiality. Mm -hmm. So I think sometimes the busyness, if you just pay attention to it, uh, can, can actually be to the benefit. That's good. Uh, we, we've kind of been tiptoeing around this. We've talked about hospitality. We've talked about relationship building. We've talked about our homes. We've talked about being a little bit of an exile in culture. And there seems to be, though, still this need to move beyond politeness, beyond superficial conversations, and really go to uh, calling people to repent and to respond. Elliot, in your book, I wonder if you can tell us a story about the young man that you're sharing with and you get through the conversation and he's like, can you share that story with us? Yeah, this is, uh, this is a hard story to tell personally. Um, our family uh, had served a number of years overseas. We had the chance to return um, and the goal for returning was mainly to encourage the believers. And, um, but when we found out we were heading back uh, and let people know, one of the first people to respond was not somebody I really wanted to meet. Um, it was an <laughs> unbeliever. Um, I, it wasn't the priority of my visit, but I just thought, okay, God's bringing this together. I should, I should pursue it. So, um, you know, I think maybe it begins there. It begins with, uh, seeing your everyday experience as God-ordained and, and the Spirit is moving. And I don't, um, I don't necessarily have to manipulate conversations. God's putting them right there. It's whether I'm going to be faithful where I am. Um, and then, so we, we got together, and it's a, a complicated relationship in that he knew some other believers. Uh, he's a Muslim himself. He knew other believers in our church. Uh, but I never was close to him. He just knew me as kind of the pastor and an acquaintance. But uh, we're sitting down, and we're 45 minutes into the conversation, and I'm praying, you know, God, I want an opportunity to speak. And this is something I talk about in the book. Uh, often our prayers for opportunities, gospel opportunities, are, are more like excuses not to um, do evangelism. So I'm praying, and I just, you know, I've got to say something. So finally, I, I just pushed the conversation with a question. You know, what do you think I believe? And he was more than happy to answer. Um, my, my general impression from non-Christians is if you ask them what they think, they'll, they'll tell you. Um, so, which is great. I mean, it, be, a, be a good listener. Be a model of a good listener first. And then they might learn from you how to listen to you. Um, so... Asked him, and he just explained, kind of gave the standard Muslim response. I know what Christianity is. I disagree with it because X, Y, Z. And I carefully tried to explain, no, it's not that way. Here's what I believe. And we were going back and forth, and it got to the, the conversation winding down, and he kind of looked perplexed, and he just said, why did you never tell me this when you lived here? And that's not what you want to hear when you're a missionary. Um, it's devastating. Um, I was unfaithful. Um, and he said, because if you had told me then, I'd had more time to ask you questions. 
um, we'd have more time to talk about this. And, uh, you know, I, I don't want to live with regret, and I don't, I'm not encouraging any of you to uh, in any way either. But God had put me in his, in his life years prior, and there were opportunities. I just didn't take advantage of them. Um, so that, I don't know if that's what you were yeah, looking for. Yeah, that, that's, that's exactly. I, I found it to be really uh, convicting that we can often wait till the perfect opportunity arises, right? Somebody asks, so what exactly is the gospel and how can I be saved, <laughs> you know? When in reality, uh, we are not to be concerned about the results, but only faithfulness, right? And there's blessing in faithfulness. And so I want to... I had, I had told myself all the reasons why it wouldn't make sense to witness to him. You know, he knew other believers. That's their job. Um, he's going to think certain things about me. Um, you know, all kind of stories we tell ourselves about why we shouldn't evangelize. That's good. Um, I want to close our time by talking about the blessing of evangelism as exiles. Elliot, you write in your book, to be an exile, to be other, is central to the Christian calling. We're strangers in our land, and that's good news. Sometimes the experience of exile can actually remind us of our true identity and home. I kind of want to kick around that kind of, uh, what does it mean to be a citizen of heaven, to not be of this world? And how is that actually... Uh, how does that actually spur us on to boldness and faithfulness in the midst of um, a world that we aren't in control and have no power, little power, rather? I think one thing that we've done, it's just a very small thing, but um, we've never let our kids participate in competitive sports on Sundays um, because we've just chosen to prioritize church, and we really believe that that's one really essential to their spiritual formation. And it, oh, it makes me feel like a complete alien. You know, people are like, we actually have some, like, pretty athletic kids, and people are like, you know, your kid could really progress at basketball if you just sign him up for that rep league. And I'm like, yeah, but um, we go to church on Sundays. Um, so that would take our family away from church. And and it's funny because the news trickles out, right? And people are like, yeah, they're, they're the church. They go to church on Sundays. They're the religious people. Like, they're the other. And you know what? As soon as you kind of get labeled that, you settle into it. And you sort of are like, great, I actually don't have to prove anything to you. I get to fully in, assume my identity as stranger and alien, and um, now I'm coming from a place where you're kind of expecting me to be the religious person. And so when I try to strike up a religious conversation with you or a spiritual que uh, have a spiritual question for you, like you, you expect that from me. Um, how wonderful, you know? And I think it, it is really wonderful to be in a context where it's like Christianity isn't just like this, like the, the sprinkling on the cupcake, you know? Like I had a good life and now I'm a Christian and it made my life even better. Like, no, it's an, it's an other life. You know, it's it's like you're eating. You know, I'm not. E I'm not even a cupcake. You know, <laughs> I don't even know what I am. I'm I'm a zucchini or something. Yes, yes, you know, yes. um, but there's a lot of freedom in that. I think, um, and kind of a release into boldness. I guess. Yeah, I think you know some of the gospel-centered movement that's come about in the last decade or two um, has pushed on us 
and, and churches and pastors don't assume the gospel. So in our churches, we've recognized maybe far too long we've assumed people in the pew know the gospel. Uh, we assume that we can preach sermons that don't preach the gospel. But the other reality is we've, for many years in our land, we've assumed our neighbors know the gospel. We've assumed that oh, they've assumed they know us. They've assumed they know what Christianity is. And as we become other, those assumptions are being broken, both from them and from us. So no longer is your neighbor necessarily uh, clear on the gospel. Most likely they're not, obviously. But, but for us especially, we maybe have had the posture that, well, they don't come to church or they're not interested in Christ because they've, they have knowledge and they've just respectfully declined. But that's not the case anymore. And so as we're, the, the, the gap widens, we can't kind of assume anything anymore. And so let's just embrace being that strange other and it empowers us to preach and honestly just to say things to people that they think are crazy. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I have non-believing friends who aren't afraid to say stupid stuff. And we, we could learn from that, honestly. Yeah. Uh, just would be willing to say things. I see it in Paul. I see it in Jesus over and over. Willing to be misunderstood and willing to kind of push the envelope in ways that is going to leave it out there so that they might want to come back because they're, they're left scratching their heads. I thought it was this way. But you're saying it's something else. I want to I know more. Finally, Doc, can you talk to us a little bit about our future hope and glory and the role that evangelism has, uh, the eschatological implications of our boldness and faithfulness in sharing the gospel as exiles? Can you just, just wax poetic for a moment about how those two things coincide uh, with one another? Well, I think, I think we are, uh, when we talk about heaven among ourselves, it tends to be uh, in worship music uh, that we're, we're singing about ourselves, and that's good, uh, but we don't have a lot of concentration on the longing for uh, eternal life that is implanted in, in everyone else. And the other thing, when it comes to, when we talk about eschatology, I think usually we, we're just thinking new heavens and new earth. Uh, we don't spend enough time thinking about and talking about hell because this is the most offensive thing. Uh, really, you get through all the other things. Ultimately, hell is the most offensive thing, not only to unbelievers, but often offensive to ourselves. And so we, we minimize this in a, in a way when actually, probably theologically, the closest point of contact that we have with a secularizing, unbelieving world is, in fact, the doctrine of judgment and the doctrine of hell because everybody ultimately gets to a point of seeing things are not the way they're supposed to be. Some things have been done to me, and they're not right, and there has to be some sort of an accounting there. They don't know where that accounting comes from, so it just, it just ends up in either bitterness or in despair or something else. We're the people who can come in and say, yes, that, that feeling that you have about ultimate judgment is correct. And it applies to everybody, Romans 1 through 3, 
And so let us show you what God has, has shown us in the cross, where God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so I think, I think sometimes when we lose that, because we think sometimes that hell is simply a, you don't want to go there, so believe in Jesus. That's not the motivation uh, of the doctrine of hell uh, in the New Testament. The uh, doctrine of hell is coming in and saying, you are called to agree with God now about the verdict that apart from Christ he would pronounce upon you. But the good news is that worst thing that could possibly happen to you if you're in Christ has happened at the cross. You're moving from judgment uh, outward. So sometimes I think when I talk to unbelievers, a lot of times they assume that Christians think that they're morally superior. And even the language that we use to make that we're not perfect, we're just forgiven or whatever, that sounds like even more uh, moral <laughs> superiority. But I think a real sense of, of hell uh, and, of, and of the hell that was experienced on the cross might cause us to communicate better. Praise God. Can we just show some love for them? Thank you all so much for coming. I'm going to close us in prayer, uh, and then we can head off to round two. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your great kindness and your mercy that is available for us every single morning. Uh, I thank you that your mercies are new because I used yesterday's mercies all up. Uh, they are never ending. You are an indefatigably gracious father. We need that grace. We need that mercy. And would it be from that that we would take the same message of hope to a world desperate for hope, desperate for mercy, and a world calling out for justice? God, you are the judge and the jury. Would you lead us? Spirit of God, would you equip us? Would you give us the boldness of Stephen? Would you give us the boldness of Philip? Would you give us the courage of Lydia and the first century Christians who, despite the winds and waves of culture, were faithful to press and buck against it? And we ask that in our efforts that we ourselves would not be made much of, but that you, the Son of God, would be lifted high. And when that happens... You would be faithful to your word and call all men and women to yourself. Lord, would you make these things so? It's in your great name we pray and for his sake. And all God's people say it. Amen. Amen. Y'all have a wonderful day. You've been listening to the Gospel Coalition podcast. For more gospel-centered resources, visit thegospelcoalition.org. Support for this podcast comes from listeners like you. Learn more and join us at tgc.org slash donate.